So this morning, uh, we're going to continue our study in the uh, great Psalm 119. If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn to that passage, Psalm 119. And I'm going to read for you the text of the day. Uh, we have entered into the fifth stanza, the, the He stanza, and we're looking today at verses 33 and 34. Listen as I read. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. The Christian life is, is uh, full of different kind of challenges. Uh, we all have uh, different things that we face in, in different areas of our life, different categories. Uh, but each of us walks a similar path. Uh, we all have uh, needs that we encounter, uh, challenges that we face. And the, the, the psalm that is in front of us is going to cover each and every challenge of your Christian experience. You, by the time you get done studying Psalm 119, will not have any challenges that have not been touched. You will, not, you will not be facing at some day in the future a challenge that Psalm 119 doesn't deal with. And so Psalm 119 really is uh, an encyclopedia of the Christian life. It's a, a, an opportunity for the Christian to sit under the instruction of the Holy Spirit uh, in such practical matters that it is astounding. You, you probably have discovered this already to a certain extent, and we're only in verse 34. We have 136 left, and so there's, there's an, an opportunity for us to grow in faith and, and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to, to get to down to the, the brass tacks, the nitty-gritty of the Christian life. See, this is an exposition uh, of the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the Christian life. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for us as a church to be encouraged and strengthened and, and directed in the things of God. And today, of course, we're going to look at these two verses. And I want you to notice uh, right off the bat who the author is addressing. He says to the Lord in verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And so what, I, what I've made our first point here, and I have two main points that you see in your outline and your bulletin, but what I want you to see here is the plea of uh, the plea to the teacher. The author here is asking God to do something. He's asking God to teach, which is why he calls him teacher. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. He's asking the teacher to do something. This is, this is exactly what, what Jesus taught his disciples. He said in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So he's saying simply ask the plea to the teacher. And I think this must be our plea. Asking God for all things in life, things that relate to blessing, supply, health, peace, joy, wisdom, etc. is right and good and God-honoring. And so it is appropriate for not only this author, but for you and me to ask of God to do things for us. 
It is in that that, that we establish our rightful relationship to him. The, the recipient, that would be you and me, and the provider, that would be God. This is, the, this is what's established right out of the gate. And I want to show you here, um, in terms of, of this education that we've been talking about, that we receive from this text, remember we're talking about kind of the divine PhD, um, the necessity of God in this divine education. You subtract God from the formula and you don't have a divine education, you just have an education. But we're interested in a divine education. We've seen that in order for us to receive any blessing, including receiving the enlarged heart at regeneration that is, that is a basic requirement to spiritual growth, God must act, God must initiate. Jesus said this in John 6, he said, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. God is the teacher. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So a response to the, to the teaching of God is, is a, uh, an interest in Christ, a, a coming to Christ. And the first, the first thing that I want you to see about the necessity of God in our divine education is that only God is the one who can teach us what we need to learn. Only God can teach us what we need to learn. What, what does the author desire to be taught in verse 33? Look at your Bible. The author de desires to be taught the way of God's statutes. That's what he's interested in. Uh, the, the way of your statutes. You, the author can read, right? I mean, obviously he can read. So why is he asking God to teach him if he can read it for himself? Well, herein lies the instruction. We need God to teach us beyond just a receiving of information. Um, we, we, can't, we can't be fully happy as God intends uh, in and of ourselves. Naturally, nature can't teach us how to be happy. Secular education can't teach us how to be happy. Um, only God can do that. Only God can bring us to the point of holiness which results in happiness. So think about this. What is it that ultimately brings joy and fulfillment in the Christian life. It's, it's a knowledge of God, but beyond simple knowledge, it's an understanding, and I'll get to that in a second. But we learn about, for example, the two natures of Christ. We learn about the omnipotence of God. We learn about salvation through Christ's death. We learn about the incarnation, the mystery of our mutual participation in becoming like Jesus. Uh, we, re we learn all that from an alien source. And that source is God, of course. We don't have um, what we need in nature or in secular education to receive that kind of thing. And, and beyond just not being able to be fully happy and enjoy a relationship with our Creator like He has designed us to, but we can't worship Him either in and of ourselves, in our natural understanding of things. Back in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said this, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Without instruction from God, we really don't know how to worship him. We, we come in with our own ideas, our own agenda, and according to Isaiah's description, it's a trampling of the courts of God. We need God's instruction. And the, the second reason that we need God's instruction, because only he can get to the heart. We need God to teach us 
because he's the only one who can teach us what we need and he's the only one who can get to the heart. Um, man teaches through the ear, which is what you're experiencing right now, but God teaches through the heart. And there's an important distinction here. As a preacher, I can only do so much. My job is to study the text and then explain it to you. God is the one who takes it beyond that point and actually applies it to your heart. Um, this, is, this is the preaching that you're experiencing now is considered external uh, teaching. But then when the Holy Spirit does his work, he takes what you've been taught, he takes what you've heard in preaching, and he applies it to the heart. That's called internal teaching. So external teaching is me speaking. Internal teaching is the Holy Spirit helping you understand and apply it to your life. Having the scriptures taught to you by a human preacher is not intended to nullify your need for the Holy Spirit to instruct your heart. This is what Paul told the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.6. I planted, he's talking about his teaching and preaching, Apollos watered, he's talked about Apollos' preaching and teaching, but God gave the growth. You have the external teaching of Paul and Apollos, and then the internal teaching of the Holy Spirit. God made it grow. I can teach you till I'm blue in the face, and unless God does something, we remain oblivious to the important things. So this is why we, every church service, we get up here and we plead with God to illumine our hearts to the text, to help us understand it, to take what's entering our ears and getting it to our hearts. That's the point of the, the pre-sermon prayer, the pre-reading prayer. Um, to a blind person, the beauty of visible creation is somewhat meaningless. Even though the sun is outside shining, they can't see the beauty of creation, even though it's fully visible. Similarly, unless the Holy Spirit opens our spiritual eyes and our hearts to see, no preaching will affect us. There needs to be spiritual light applied by the Holy Spirit to your heart. Look at verse 18 real quickly in Psalm 119. You see that prayer? Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your word. That prayer is the same prayer using different words found in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord. Because if you don't teach me, it's not going to happen. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This is really important. You can listen to as much preaching, read as many books as you want to, have all the podcasts in the world, and unless the Holy Spirit does his work, you remain blind to spiritual things. Paul understood this, of course, and he wrote this in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1 to the Ephesians. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, now listen to his prayer, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you see what Paul's asking for in this prayer? For the spirit to do his work. God, please do your work amongst your people. If you're going to pray for me throughout the week, and I hope you do, 
if you're going to pray for me, pray that God will take what comes out of my mouth and take it to the center of your soul. I mean, you can pray for my attentiveness in my study, and I, I need that. You can pray for my, for my uh, holiness throughout the week. I need that. But above all of this, we need, you need, I need the Holy Spirit to take his word and penetrate the recesses of our heart. That's what we need. Pray that for yourselves, for me, for this church. You see the scripture, even, even the scripture, the black and white pages in front of us is external light. Uh, just as the sun is to the world, understanding what is said is the internal light which, which the author prays for here in verse 33 and 34. The Holy Spirit must remove our spiritual blinders. Um, this is what Jesus demonstrated in his miracle of healing the blind man in John 9. Only God can do this. This guy was blind for 38 years. Only God can heal that. You and I are spiritually blind from birth, and only God can heal that. So <clears throat> only God can teach us. Only God can get to the heart. And thirdly, we need God to do this daily. We, we need him to do it daily, uh, and it's, it's necessary. You know, I, I think it's obvious um, that the author of, of this particular psalm is a spiritually mature individual. I mean, besides the fact that it's in Scripture, it's, it's inspired, but the content alone is mind-boggling in this chapter. So we know, we know that he's a spiritual man. And yet he, he has this kind of prayer, this kind of plea for God to do his work. Even though he's a spiritual man, the necessity of God to be at work. Um, and I, I think that we can say that if, if this author recognized his need for divine instruction, how much more should we need this? We, we don't have to search very, very long to discover a long list of mature Christians who have fallen into sin and have shamed the name of Christ and disqualified themselves from ministry in one degree or another. That list is long and, and well known. And so it's evident that unless God is at work, unless God continues to do his work, uh, we will naturally drift away from him. I covered this extensively in our short series on the danger of drifting. But we need to continually, no matter what our spiritual level of strength is, continually to pursue God and ask his mercy on our souls and protection over our spiritual lives. Because left to ourselves, we drift away from the dock, not towards it. This is what the author here is praying. Teach me, O Lord. Open my eyes, Lord. Help me, God. <clears throat> so, of course, the Holy Spirit is the key player in this work. He, he takes what we've been taught externally through preaching, teaching, reading, and applies that to our hearts. And this is exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do in John 14. There, he's going to come and teach us, remind us of things, apply it to our hearts. And one more point, I have a fourth point here that you don't have in your bulletin that you'll need to add 
But it's, it's this, and that is that God gets the glory from all of this. We get the blessing. God gets the glory. We get the blessing. You know, Psalm 19 begins with an invitation to happiness, and it does so because we each crave it and need it to be fulfilled. Um, and, and, and here's the second part. We need, we need happiness to, to be fulfilled and to be happy, and God needs us to be happy to, to receive glory. So the way that you best glorify God is not by whipping yourself or by serving so difficultly in the nursery that you, you go insane. Uh, the way that God is most glorified is when you're happy in him. When you are most satisfied in Christ is when God is most glorified in you. That's what brings God joy and glory is when you are happy in him. And, and so when we come to this rightful place of, of, of dependence on God and his work in us, and then he does it, he gets the glory for doing it, and we get the joy for him doing it. <clears throat> Next, the focus of divine education. I want you to look at verse 34 and see if you can pick for yourself, if you had to pick, what the focus of divine education is. It's a word that starts with you. Understanding. Right? This must be the focus of education. A good, a good education must result in understanding. If you don't have understanding, it's not a good education. It, it, it's the objective of all good education, especially divine education. The goal is not to gain knowledge, but to gain understanding in any educational setting. When, when someone understands God's word, they are prone to obey it because understanding is something that moves the will to action. That's what motivates you to do is your understanding not your knowledge. All right, so um, the first year I ever coached uh, high school soccer was in Grants Pass, Oregon in 1987. And uh, we finished the season with two wins and nine losses. And they were actually happy about that because they, hadn't they haven't won a game in like three or four years. And so they thought this was a great accomplishment. I was, I was depressed by it. They were encouraged by it. Um, and so I try to convince them that this wasn't a, the goal here, um, to finish last in league, um, even though we had a win or two. Uh, I, I, I was, became more and more aware in my young coaching career the importance of fitness. And I was able to recognize throughout the season that we lost a lot of those nine games, if not all of those nine games, because we weren't fit. And so I was able to convince those young men, that fitness was our problem, and motivate their will to be fit by a promise of happiness on the other side if they would be fit. And so they promised, and I assisted in their entering the next season totally fit. And our, our, our objective was to never lose a game because of fitness. And that next year, we accomplished that. 
goal. And with the same group of boys, we finished 14 and 2 with that same group. They understood finally the importance of something and it motivated them to work out hard. It's the same way with you and I. When we understand something, we're motivated to do it. When we understand God's word, we understand the point of his instruction, we're motivated to obey it. And this is what we see here. Motivation. Look at verse 34. It's understanding. Give me understanding. He first says, verse 33, teach me the way of your statutes. And then in 34, give me understanding. Why? So that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. He wanted to understand it. He wanted to be motivated to do it. Uh, this, this idea of understanding is, is the, the idea that comes along with aligning yourself with God. So in and of ourselves, we aren't aligned with God. We're out of kilter. We're, we're out of alignment. Uh, and, and the prayer here is that we will be, come back into alignment with God's character and will so that we will be able to obey him wholeheartedly. Um, yesterday I, I, I was working in my backyard and I installed a trellis for my wisteria plant and I wanted to make sure it was plumb, it was square, and so I got out a square and I laid it against the side of the trellis and I looked at that little bubble and made sure it was between the lines and then I set it. That, that is what's the idea of understanding. You, you align yourself to God's standard so that you will be able to understand, so that you'll be able to obey. That's the idea of understanding, aligning yourself to God. And this is what the plea is of the author. Help me be in line with you, God, so that I can obey. So we, we really haven't learned from our education unless we understand. This is what Paul prayed for in Colossians. He said this, listen, we, you heard this this morning, but let me reread it. And so, Colossians 1, 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, again, a dependence upon God, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, aligning yourself with God's will. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Where does that come from? Understanding. Understanding the word. And where does understanding come from? God. So he's asking to be taught, and he's asking to understand what he's being taught. So without understanding, this never happens. Um, Paul desired that the Colossians would have knowledge that resulted in understanding, which would result in walking worthy of the Lord and bearing fruit. They are all connected. You get preached at, the Holy Spirit does his work, you go out and obey, God blesses you with joy and he gets the glory. So understanding improves our odds against temptation. If you don't understand, you're already down in the count. But understanding improves our odds against temptation. We have a crafty enemy, don't we? Uh, not only do we have a crafty enemy, uh, we have a deceitful heart. You put those two things together and we're down 0 and 2 to the count. 
It's, it's not a good situation. Um, and so we need God to do his work in us, to help us understand. Paul said this in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Putting on the whole armor of God includes the idea of understanding what you're doing. He goes through this list in, in Ephesians 6 that we're all familiar with. The shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, um, and so forth. So understanding improves our odds against temptation. You get tempted, the more you understand, the less you're going to fall to that temptation. Secondly, understanding improves our decisions. Understanding God's word improves your decisions in a few different areas. Let me mention two. In your decisions that you make every day between God and man, between whether or not you're going to fear God or fear man, whether or not you're going to, to give in to the demands of your neighbors or your friends who don't have the things of God at, my, at heart, or whether you're going to submit yourself to God. Um, do, do you uh, desire the approval of God or the approval of man? Do you remember uh, Peter and John in Acts chapter 5, they were preaching and the, the religious leaders gathered them to counsel and said, you can't preach Jesus in Jesus' name any longer. And you remember their response? Well, God told us to do that, and you're telling us not to. We're going to have to decide whether we obey God or man. You have those decisions every single day, and so do I. Are you going to listen to and submit to what the world says you need to be thinking and doing, or are you going to listen to and submit to what God is saying you need to be thinking and doing? When you understand the word, it helps you in those decisions. It clarifies what's important. And when you cease to understand, you continually fall for what the world's selling. Have you noticed that in your life? I certainly have in mine. Understanding also improves the decision between the seen and the unseen. This is just more detail about God over man. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 6, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will take care of themselves, right? So uh, we, we, the kingdom of God, of course, are things unseen, and Jesus is telling us to focus on those things, and, and then the seen things will take care of themselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 16 through 18, Paul tells us that we have these light and momentary afflictions, but what are they doing? They're building for us an eternal weight of glory. We have light and momentary afflictions which are seen, the eternal weight of glory which is unseen, and he's saying focus on the unseen things. Uh, don't focus on what is seen because what's seen is, he said, was transient, it's, it's passing. But what's unseen is eternal. And so when you have a God-given understanding of the seen versus the unseen, you will tend towards uh, appreciating the unseen over what you can see. Um, but understanding, to move to the third point, uh, improves our affections. Understanding improves our affections. Unless we understand something, we really can't believe it. Uh, you may say you believe certain things, but unless you understand what you say you believe, you really don't believe it. Um, this is why when I interview people for baptism, uh, I always ask them questions that reveal their understanding of the gospel. No matter what the age of the person coming into my office, uh, and last week we had uh, a bunch of people coming into my office 
preparing for baptism, and I would ask them simple questions about the gospel. And their ability to communicate to me their understanding of the gospel determined whether or not they were ready for baptism. And so this is, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Um, we need understanding in order to believe. Once understanding takes root, it grows into affections for the things understood. Let me give you an example. Once you understand the point of church, your affection for church grows. If you don't understand why church is important, you won't want to be here. <laughs> but when you begin to understand it, your affection for being here grows and grows deeply. Next, once you understand the necessity of personal devotion, Bible reading, prayer, meditation, once you understand the necessity of that, your affection for deepening your own devotion grows. Once you understand Jesus Christ, the better prepared you will be for an eternal presence with him. I spoke about this last week in, with the idea of being fit for heaven. And some of you were a little confused about what that meant, being fit for heaven. And I hope you understand by now that I did not mean any kind of meritorious work to get to heaven. You are fit for heaven the moment you are regenerated, in a forensic sense. You are ready to see Jesus because you, he has given you a new heart. You've been converted. You are now in the family of God. You are ready for heaven in that moment. But the more that you understand Jesus, the more your affection for him grows, which prepares you more deeply to appreciate eternity with him. That's what being fit for heaven means. So <clears throat> we have these, these important things that relate to understanding, and I have one more that's not in your bulletin, and I'm sorry about this. Understanding improves fruit production. As I just read for you from Colossians chapter 1, you remember what I just read for you there, don't you? I just said this, and so from the day we heard, Paul said, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding why. So that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Understanding results in fruit bearing in the Christian life. The more you understand about Scripture and God in Christ and all things spiritual, the more fruit you will produce and the better fruit you will produce in the Christian life. So look at your life. Do you see a production of fruit? If not, there is a lack of understanding. That doesn't mean you don't know Jesus. It just means you need to go deeper in him. And you'll see fruit begin to blossom in your life. And so we need to, with the author, plead for understanding. Teach me, O Lord. Give me understanding, God. Because I want to improve my odds against temptation. I want to improve my decisions. I, I want to improve my infections. I want to improve my fruit bearing as a Christian. This is attractive to me, and I hope it is to you. If it is, then we must pay attention to the word. We must receive external teaching. 
the, the, the preaching, the, the being taught in Sunday seminars, getting on your podcast and reading your books. We must have that external influence coming into our ears. But then we also must pray and ask God to do that work in our hearts. Take it from the mind to the heart. Ask, seek, knock, and it will be given unto you, is what Jesus said. Now let's look at the promises the student makes. We, we see the plea to the teacher. I've just tried to lay out those pleas that you've, you've heard. Now let's look at the promise from the student. God, if you'll teach me, then I promise to do the following. First of all, he promises constant obedience. Do you see this? Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. <clears throat> John Calvin has an interesting twist on this meaning of this verse. It, um, he thinks it means that I will keep my eye on the mark. Not, not that I'll so much keep it to the end of my life, but that I'll, I will remain focused on the target. Uh, like similarly to what the Apostle Paul said in, in Philippians 3, I press on to the goal. I keep my eye on that, on that objective. That's the way Calvin looks at this verse. Um, but either way, it's an idea of, of, of a promise to be constantly vigilant towards the things of God, the commands of God. The next promise we see is that he promises affection and obedience affectionate obedience. The, the focus there is the word affectionate. I will observe it with my whole heart, he says in verse 34. That's, that's, a, that's communicating the affection of it all. You see, you can, you can get things done without affection, can't you? We have all done this, uh, mowing the lawn, taking out the trash, pulling weeds, we can all do those things, but very few of us do them with affection, right? We get them done to get them done. When it comes to the things of God, we need to have an affectionate pursuit of obedience if we're going to have a joyful Christian life. There must be an affection for the obedience to the things of God if we're going to experience joy and happiness. So how do you get there? I mean, I think it's right to to be diligent in obedience and do what you should do, whether or not you're joyful in it, but to add affection to the requirement of obedience changes everything and motivates you to be more obedient, to be more vigilant, be more focused. But to observe the laws of God with my whole heart is something that God must accomplish for you. Please see that. This is a plea to God to accomplish it, to him to do it. You, you're not going to be able to muster affection. As strange as it is, God tells us, he commands us to be joyful. All you sullen people, God says, be happy. I like that for a command. Well, this is difficult, isn't it? It is very difficult. It's not easy to grow in, in passionate obedience because it is a grace of God. It's, it's a gift from God. 
This is uh, what Paul communicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He talks about the, the natural man not being able to understand the things of the Spirit. Why? Because they're of the Spirit, and the natural man doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit must do his work if we're going to be affectionate towards obedience. Um, and in Philippians chapter 2, Paul explained to that church um, the necessity of of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's hard work. But then he says, you can do this because God's at work in you to accomplish these things. This is a work of God. God must act, we must participate. It's difficult, so you must start there, a dependence upon God, which is the focus of these two verses. Secondly, it's humbling. To recognize you need something or need someone humbles you, doesn't it? Some of, has a real, some of us have a real hard time asking for help. Um, or is that the second congregation, the second service people? It's certainly them, I know that. But I would suppose a few of you in here have a real hard time asking for help. Usually your response is, ah, I got it. Like, can we come help you this afternoon? No, it's okay. I, I, I can take care of it. No one wants to ask for help because you appear weak. And when you appear weak, you're humbled. No one likes that. But this is exactly what's required for affectionate obedience is humility. You, you must actually cry out for help from God. We are insufficient for the task. Paul said this, he goes, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not, not yet know as he ought to know. You don't know as much as you think you do, is what Paul's saying. And that is the case with us. This speaks to the importance of humbly sitting under the instruction of the word at every possible juncture and pleading with the Holy Spirit that he does his work through the external teaching and applies it to your heart via internal teaching. For the past few years, Sun Valley Church has been sending some of our men down to the Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church in Southern California. And at the Shepherds Conference, there are some amazing, great preachers and teachers of the Word there. And I am always encouraged uh, when I speak to some of those keynote speakers and hear them talk about how instructed they were, how uh, encouraged they were and challenged by one of the other speakers there. It's interesting. These, these, these spiritual giants, these, these guys who are, are miles ahead of us in the things of God, are humbly sitting under the instruction of other men in that setting and rejoicing in it. Humility, friends, is a great place to start when it comes to enjoying a life of obedience, acknowledging your need, crying out for help, not only from God, but from other believers. This is critical. So we have uh, the difficulty of affectionate obedience, the, the, the um, humbling nature of it, 
And then I'll, now I want you to see the fact that it requires cultivation. If you're going to have an affectionate obedience, if you're going to enjoy obeying God, it requires a cultivation. It's not something that's, that you go down and buy at the store and get batteries for and turn it on. It's something that requires cultivating. Uh, and of course, the, the saying is, with eating comes the appetite. With practice comes proficiency. So being here on Sunday mornings is really important. But adding to your spiritual diet throughout the week is also important. Are you reading good books instead of watching TV throughout the, the week? I'm fairly confident that there is no eternal value in any sitcom that's on TV today. Do you have good biblical teaching podcasts that you're listening to? Are you attending the Sunday seminar? Are you washing your soul with the word of God at every opportunity? What are you listening to on the way to work? It requires cultivation. Finally, the motivation for affection and obedience is a love for God and a desire to please Him. The motivation for affectionate obedience is a love for God and a desire to obey Him. This is what is said in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us or motivates us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know, you know how you're going to obey God affectionately is to be compelled or constrained or motivated by your love for Christ and a desire to please Him. This was the, the running motivation for the Apostle John. He said, one day we will see Him, and I don't want to be caught sinning on that day. You know, this is, this is a kind of a legalistic way that my parents used to train me to be obedient. Hey, John, would you like to be caught doing that if Jesus returned right now? And I go, no! And so I'd freak out and stop, you know. But we want this to be a motivation of a love for Christ and a desire to please him, our Savior who died for us and loves us beyond any of our ability to understand. We want to be prepared for what God has in store for us in the days ahead, don't we? God has planned for us to grow in Christ. He's, he's, he's designed us to be joyful creatures that obey him and rejoice in a relationship with their creator. We, we want to be able to walk in the light of the word, uh, even though the path is hard. And so, friends, do we look for spiritual knowledge, not just filling the head, but, but a spiritual knowledge that we understand that enters the heart? Do we acknowledge our weakness and are we aware of Satan's tricks and are we uh, desperate for God's work in us? Do we live like we know that God who began a good work in us will complete it? Um, do we enjoy growing rich in the knowledge and understanding of God? Um, God just doesn't want our obedience, friends. He wants our 
affectionate obedience. God could have produced a bunch of obedient robots. He's not interested in obedience. He's interested in your affectionate, joyful obedience. Jesus said in Luke 11, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's what makes us happy. You see, our comfort and joy is in obeying God. Um, this is what we're told in Psalm 19, that there is great reward in obedience. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, And everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and the great was its fall. Friends, the, the, the objective of the Christian life is knowledge resulting in understanding, resulting in obedience that brings joy to our experience. So a good education will result in obedience that results in joy. God is not interested in, in half-hearted disciples. God is not interested, and by the way, half-hearted disciples are disciples that obey, but not joyfully. So you, you can be a great Pharisee, but that's not going to accomplish the glory of God or the joy of his people. So we don't, we don't want just external profession. We don't just want external conformity. We, we want to be in love with God. This requires a dependence and a humility on our part for God to accomplish that in us. But we must ask. It's in the asking where God receives the glory. I think a lot of the times, along with Jesus, the reason you don't receive what, what you need is because you haven't asked. So let's ask. I, I literally pray every day for God's blessing on myself, on this church, on my children, on my wife. I, I'm, I'm a good asker. I love asking. What harm in there is in asking, right? And, and the beauty is, is that this is God's will, that we ask. <laughs> Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I will keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Let's pray. God, this is our desire. We want to be obedient children, but we want to be joyfully obedient. We don't simply want to go through um, the meaningless routines. We, we want to experience your blessing and the joy that comes with affection and obedience. And it all boils back to this. God, you must do this. We are utterly dependent upon you. So now, God, um, to submit to your will, I ask that you would do this for us, that you would come alongside each and every one of us who humbles themselves before you, who cries out to you with a heart, a, a genuine contrite heart of confession that you would meet us right here in our point of need and, and fulfill your promises to us, that we would be 
obedient and, and strengthened, and, and not just, um, not just in, a, in a separated way, but in an affectionate way. God, please grant us affectionate obedience as a people. We know that only you can do this, and we know that you've promised to do this. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.